1: don mcgregor co-founded a social media company called social chain with stephen barler from being university dropouts the pair went on to build a multi-million pound business at jimmy's jobs we love to praise the success of entrepreneurship and highlight all the jobs that these people create but at times there inevitably comes a cost to it. Today, we focus on the struggles behind closed doors of entrepreneurship. With fast-growing businesses, there comes immense pressure. And in today's episode with Dol, he bravely discusses how he struggled with alcohol. I felt like a bit of imposter
0: syndrome. I felt anxious. So I ended up drinking quite a lot and alcohol became my kind
1: of medicine escape. People in demanding and adrenaline-fueled jobs can often look to replicate the highs that substance abuse brings or even use it to self-medicate. Michael Freeman from the University of San Francisco suggests that startup founders are three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse. It's almost as if entrepreneurship is the new rock and roll. Dom had to make a choice.
0: The alcohol had to go. I had to stop drinking and I kind of became sober. It made my life a lot clearer.
1: In this episode, Dom takes us on a remarkable journey of two young men in their 20s, from the parties and the success of social change to becoming an alcoholic. So welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, Dominic. What was your route into the world of work? Did you do any work experience to begin with? Thanks, Jimmy. So my first kind of experience
0: in job was, like most people, was work experience of school. So I think we were 15, maybe year 10, where we had two weeks work experience. And I don't know if that still happens now. I kind of resented it a little bit. Um, I was like, how can I make these two weeks very easy for me? I spoke to my old primary school and went in for two weeks to be a assistant PE teacher. I love sports, so I spent my two weeks playing rounders, football and everything with people who were in my little brother's year. It was really quite an enjoyable two
1: weeks. That was my first kind of experience of work, to be honest. Sounds pretty good fun, and I can imagine quite an enjoyable couple of weeks to start with. And of course, your first job, I believe, was actually social change, potentially. Am I right in saying that? Because you met Stephen Bartlett whilst at university. It was my first like grown up
0: job. I think that's what I would say. Like the job where I worked the hardest is I actually used to work at a coffee shop at York station called uh, AMT. And it was shifts that started at five in the morning. And there'd be some days where we finish at 10. So that was where I worked the hardest. And that was the summer of 2012, which was obviously the Olympics and the Euros at the time. So I remember just being like, I'm sat there with my phone with this new invention called SkyGo, where you could sit and watch the Olympics and football. And I thought I was revolutionary. So I was sat there watching the football and the Olympics while working at a coffee shop. <laughs> I think I'm very proud of that role because I did it from April to September as a summer job. Not once did I ever phone in sick. Not once did I miss a shift. I remember having the showers at 4.30 in the morning thinking, why the hell am I doing this? But it really taught me a really positive work ethic. Before that, I did do a couple of cash in hand jobs. That's a really weird thing to say. But I did do yeah, a couple of refereeing jobs in football. I remember one Sunday night where I used to work Sunday nights from about 4 till 10. So long shifts on your feet, but you're refereeing football, so you enjoy it. But I remember one winter, I think it was minus 17 degrees when I woke up that morning and there was snow on the ground. Basically, the only way I was going to get a shift that night is that if I came and cleared the snow from the football pitches. So I put my thermals on at 12 o'clock. I went out and cleared all the snow from the football pitches, putting it behind the goals so that people could play their five-a-side and then worked until 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, I remember getting, yeah, getting into the car at night. It was again minus 17 degrees and it was like one of the coldest days on record, but I was out there working and had so many layers and thermals on. Social chain was my first grown-up job, you know, out of university, but I definitely learned the value of hard work and always had the attitude of working hard in those jobs before falling into social chain.
1: It's amazing how many people come on the show and have done some form of hospitality job. It teaches you a huge amount about work ethic and fundamentally getting on with people and customer service, which are so important to any role that you take later on in life as well.
0: Exactly. And, and during that stint, I served Gareth Southgate, who'd been the manager. Uh, Dame Judy Depp, who obviously, yeah, James Bond, the actress, Carol Vorderman. And it was the same as treating anyone else. In the regulars that would come in, you'd know them, you'd know. I still remember the guy now for the life of me, he's a double cappuccino, four sugars, please. And that's, you know, that you, you know, people buy their coffee drinks. People get have regulars same time same Because it's a train station, you see, you get a lot more consistency of people coming. So you make friends with people, you speak to people and treat everyone the same. So yeah, it does really ground you in a lot of good disciplines. Some hospitality, I did some bar work. That's not nice. That's not nice. You know, coffee shops is a much nicer vibe than it is running a bar.
1: I can, yeah, totally appreciate that. Thanks for name dropping all those people because I'm definitely going to name check them on social after this and hear <laughs> how, they, how they fold into your story. But tell us about that then. Tell us about meeting Stephen and and how you came to found Social Chain and, and talk us a bit through the kind of growth that it went to as well because it was sort of 200 people by the time you left. Yeah, You founded it at university. It's an incredible story, which I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more about.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you probably tell from this thread of conversation, I'm very interested in sport. I went to university to do sport science with the ambition of joining the revolution of data and insights in football. I was very early into some of the technology tools which clubs were using to analyse players and I I thought that would be the route I would go down. But something inside of me, I don't know what it was, but I just didn't settle at universities which I wanted to. I think it was the temperature. I got very cold. I was in Edinburgh. It's very cold up there. Scots are lovely. I love the Scottish people, but temperature, it was that winter when we just had a freezing cold winter. And I remember being in my flat in Edinburgh. It was a listed building. So the windows were just single panes. And I went to bed in a, a onesie, a hoodie, socks on, two duvets and a heater. I mean, I still froze to death. So yeah, I don't know what it was, but I just never settled at the university. So I was always looking for other things, I guess, in university, out of university and just throw myself into projects rather than studying life. I was, you know, a big socialite. I really enjoyed going out and I was in the football team. So I, I made a lot of friends that way. Wednesday nights were always a, a kind of sporting night. So went out one night and the next morning I woke up and actually went to the toilet and there was no toilet paper. So instead of doing what most people were doing, going to the shop and buying more toilet paper, I actually decided to tweet about it. So under the acronym Student Problems, I tweeted. You know, you're a student when you run out of toilet paper. I wish I still had that tweet because I would mint it and put it in the notes. <laughs> <NFT. laughs> <laughs> for me, that was, you know, that was the most valuable thing I've ever done in my life was that. And then student, student problems grew from 400 followers in the first five weeks. Took me a long time to get there to 10,000 followers in the next two weeks. So it was on exponential growth. It was just me sharing life as a university student. And that's when I came to meet Steve, who started a business called Wallpark, which is basically a for students. He was living at ways to speak to students and reach them. And we decided that coming together and building these social media assets where we send people from social media to the website was the right way to go about it. So I dropped out university for a salary of £500 a month. A lot of people don't know that. I turned my back on university for that with the hope that one day it would come good. That was the kind of ambition. Moved back from university, moved to Leeds where I was the city manager for Wallpark, but also head of marketing. The four of us at the time were building out this project. It failed. part didn't become what we wanted to be. And what was the success is that we managed to build an audience of over 10 million students across our social media assets, which I was kind of responsible for. Once Wellpart kind of fell apart, we went traveling around Thailand and Brazil, South America. And what we realized is that the social media assets we built were incredibly valuable. And if we took those assets and worked with brands or products or apps, we could make them a success on, in a download or get people to sign up.
1: When you say assets, do you mean sort of followings in that regard?
0: Yeah. So we had pages
1: where people
0: followed. They followed it for the funny content. They followed it for the memes, I guess. You know, I, I kind of say, you know, we one of the early, early inventors of memes, you know, but people followed it for the humor. And what we kind of realized is that, you know, we know how to run social media pages and we know what people like. Let's tell brands how to do that now. What year was that in then? That was in, let me just work out my last time. That was in the, 20, that was the end of 2013, 2014.
1: And so then it went on this kind of huge exponential growth curve again, and you were advising some of the biggest brands in the world on this, which we'd love to hear about how you won some of those first clients, but you then also had to start hiring really quickly as well. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I saw you tweeted the other day about employees can overvalue experience at points, which I thought was a really interesting observation that actually give young people the freedom and the responsibility to do things and they can go a long way with it. We'd love to hear some of your reflections on how to hire young people and what skills you were looking for during that period.
0: Yeah. And coming to the point of our first client, our first client is actually now a PMC. It sounds crazy, but it's a big fashion PLC, but we were talking to these brands and didn't have Instagram accounts. You know, that's kind of a really scary thing to think about. Brands don't have Instagram accounts. Or if they did, they are in the infancy. It was a really easy job really at first to convince people that social media was the future because they just asked the team what they were using and you could look at people on their phones. So, The hard part was getting the trust to why they should be on it and how they're going to use it and what it's going to mean for them. That's the kind of questions we had to answer as a business is how do they use social media? So we answered those questions for them. In terms of the people we brought in, we had a really strong nucleus of people who were like us who had built social media pages. They were other kids in their bedrooms. They were other people who had grown communities from scratch. And we brought everyone together. And the idea behind Social Chain initially was supposed to be a chain of social media pages. That was the ambition. And that was what the business was basically. And it wasn't probably until we got to like 10 people that we actually did a recruitment drive, I guess you'd call it. From that recruitment drive, actually two of those people from that day are actually still in the business. And that was six years ago. So we put an ad out when we were moving to Manchester that we were looking for people to come join the Manchester office. And we worked with Manchester Met University to get a couple of applicants from the business courses here. There'd be people who were from the city, who were kind of on that curve of graduating and doing the next thing. We held the interviews and basically what we we didn't know what we needed, but what we knew we were looking for was the right attitude. And we knew that attitude would overcome skill because ultimately we're actually a completely new thing, a new product. So we couldn't ask for anyone who's got two years experience in social media because that didn't exist. I don't think social media managers was a job title at the time. We kind of knew that we had to look for the right attitudes rather than the right skill sets because when you're doing something new, a lot of the time tradition can tarnish what you're doing. People who've got experience from different backgrounds may come in and tweak it so it fits the current mold. With genuine innovation, you probably need to have people who are fresh thinking so that's what i thought we we look for is the right attitude and people who have got a passion and interest in the area but not necessarily spoilt by previous experiences that was kind of the approach we went down and we aggressively hired from 10 to 25 people in the next couple of months all of whom had that background and all of whom wanted to be part of a on the ground floor of a the new venture i think we benefited from the social network coming out the movie everyone was kind of really interested in the startups trying to find the next facebook but that definitely helped from a cultural perspective because the idea of a Start business went from being something which is completely risky to being something which could be completely lucrative. We knew that right people can learn things rather than people with bad attitudes spoiling the broth. I guess.
1: I think that's really interesting, and an attitude always trumping skills or mindset values trumping skills is something we hear a lot from uh, our founders.
0: I think to a point. I think you know we appreciate that at some point we needed those skills, but at that point you've got the right amount of attitude. That someone who comes in with maybe the wrong attitude, the right skills becomes the attitude that you set out. You know, if you've got 10 highly motivated people and you bring in one very skillful, not completely motivated person, the community will adopt them and make them more motivated. I do believe that. So that's why we focus really early on in the culture and the attitude, because when people were joined, they would become the culture rather than becoming them. So yeah, a point, a point, but we did need to bring in some of the traditional business skills, which helped steer the
1: business later on. Further down the line, yeah, I think that's true. It's very hard to change culture further down the line, whereas hiring skills is is something that's more quantifiable as well, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is, and you know the culture doesn't change too much. It doesn't really change at all, and it can change if you don't look after it. But we obviously had a real important focus on it, and we knew that we could then back day bringing in skill for people who may be able to help in areas not necessarily just a cultural area.
1: And what do you think, because social media executives, managers is always one of the examples I give when we talk about jobs of the future to people in terms of ten years ago, these jobs didn't exist. and now companies, you know, will have like you say fashion brands will have entire teams dedicated to managing Instagram accounts, whereas even five years ago, like you're saying, that wasn't such a thing. And it's just quite a way that people can kind of grasp it from slightly older generations. What do you think might be the next? trend in social media and so on. What are you seeing that's out there? Obviously, you're at the forefront of a lot of this stuff. I would be really curious to know if you were advising somebody wanting to get into that kind of world or a new similar world to that, where should they be looking?
0: Yeah. And I think when you come back to the job title of social media manager, that's such a broad role. I don't think you understand what goes into the production of content, management of channels. There's every single skill set from it, understanding insights and data to being a content creator, to being a, a marketeer as well. The remit of a social media manager, or what people think is social media, is so broad that you obviously got such a huge range of skills. So I think what businesses are still doing, is they're putting a label on something which is quite easy to define and quite comforting, but really what a good social media manager looks like or what the responsibilities of a good social media manager is varies hugely across the industry. I do a bit of advisory work with some private companies to upskill the difference between kind of content. So when I talk about content, I tend to talk about things you see online on social media, but big companies are still thinking of content as a big TV campaign that goes out every Christmas or or what we're going to put on site in the inside stores, kind of digital screens. You know, businesses have a lack of understanding of how to create content. So they think hiring a social media manager suddenly they'll be able to bring in content to the business. But it's not like that. There's a whole ecosystem behind that, which is used to create daily content people see on feeds, which I don't think businesses yet represent and yet understand the demand needs to be a content marketing company. The kind of second question there about what I think the forefront looks like next let's be quite bold here is that people who've got followers or influence on social media will be the ones launching businesses of the future. They're the ones who can really easily test something to see whether, whether it works. And they've already got a ready-made audience to speak to. As influencers and people of influence and media gets more democratized and we're not just stuck to single channels from the BBC or from the Daily Mail and we get our news and information and fashion trends from elsewhere, businesses will have to ride that wave and have to either become a place where that news comes from and become more of a publisher themselves, or really, really integrate people of influence, media publisher, new age media into their business model. I wouldn't be surprised if I start seeing some businesses out there buying social media assets aggressively, they social media publishing houses or followers for their own purposes. I think that that would be something I would see is if you can't build it, buy it, but people will try and build it.
1: It's interesting on a number of points that, I mean, we talk to various businesses about partnering with Jimmy's Jobs of the future on the podcast, and obviously we've got Octopus Group, they're doing the second series. But the amount of businesses that say, well, actually, we've decided that we're going to do this in-house. And I just think that it's a kind of missed opportunity. And actually, they probably will find it quite hard work. It reminds me, and this may be a bit ahead of your time, Dominic, but it reminds me a bit of blogging in the mid-noughties. Every individual and corporate was launching a blog. And actually, quickly, they realized that creating content for blogs was actually quite hard work. And it wasn't that straightforward to do on a regular, consistent basis. And it probably took more time and effort than they were worth. It will be interesting to see how the future of that goes out. Could you name check? Because not many people might know this, but who are the good social media houses out there that the big names, would you say?
0: Well, obviously, social change is one of those big names, but you've got some fantastic publishing businesses, like likes of Jungle Creations, which is a really good business. Karyos Media, again, a really good business. But then you've got some really unique bespoke individual creators who run Facebook communities. I was speaking to a guy the other day who runs a 400,000 Instagram page, which is all around luxury fashion. And he is getting higher engaged, and read in a lot of premium brands and controls and influences young people across the country. These houses and businesses aren't necessarily what you think when you look at them. Some of them are just individual creators in their bedrooms who, instead of going down a the face of an influencer and a name, they've just created a brand and proposition. There's a huge range of people here who are influencing people. It doesn't necessarily have to be a face and a name. I think a lot of the best creators create meaningful content behind brands. So a great one on YouTube is uh, Economics Explains, is a guy who just talks about economics. He doesn't put his face anyway, he obviously he's the voice but he rakes in millions and millions of views every single month around economics videos. Is he influencing how people perceive and view things? I definitely think so. Is he more influential than some of the world leading economists? Maybe,
1: maybe. Certainly potentially in the future, right? When these people yeah, grow yeah. up, like, you've seen this with all of GameStop and you know, all the aspects around that, you know, it's fascinating kind of modern day economic and market influencing, right? Exactly. So yeah, I think that is
0: the creator network, you know, it's not influencers, it's creator network.
1: Yeah, that's a very good way of praising it. And your advice to young people, I mean, the Dominic McGregor story at Social Chain must have been amazing to be a part of this. University dropout and then, although I don't like the term dropout, put it like that. And then you go on this enormous growth trajectory, stumbling along the way, like you explained and so on. But it must have been incredibly exciting winning all these clients and a very fast-paced lifestyle that you were living and doing all this on social media as part of that. You've been very open with kind of how it caught up with you a little bit. And I just wondered if you could take us through that and what advice you would give to young people as well who live so much of their life online now, how to kind of be aware of that because you've been very open about the challenges that you faced.
0: Yeah. And I mean, when you start out with something you do for fun and it's passionate and it turns into a career, that's probably a dream situation for anyone. For me, it was, that was my life. You know, I was used to working with Disney and Amazon. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't know it was unique until people started telling us that this is actually quite a unique thing. And I guess, you know, that passion, which started out as a passion, turned into a business. And I don't think I was ready for that transition of going into something with responsibility where. People depend on you, and, people, and you're accountable to individuals who are younger than you, who look to you for guidance and leadership. I wasn't ready for that, you know, at 22 years old. So a lot of the pressures got to me in the sense that I was overwhelmed, I felt like a bit of imposter syndrome, I felt anxious. So I ended up drinking quite a lot and alcohol became my kind of medicine escape from this new unsure world that I was now living in, where I had to worry about cash flow, I had to understand all these kind of concepts and be responsible for making decisions which impact people's lives. At any age, I think it's a difficult thing to take on, but at 22 years old, you kind of not ready for it. So I had to kind of grow quickly and I made a lot of mistakes and a lot of that was around alcohol. So the alcohol had to go, I had to stop drinking and I kind of became sober. It made my life a lot clearer. I was unsure at first whether what was the problem, you know, whether it was the world or whether it was me or whether it was other external factors. But very quickly from removing alcohol of my life, I kind of knew
1: what the problems were and how I could move forward beyond them and what kind of person I wanted to be. It must have been hard though, because alcohol is partly used for a good time as well, right? You win clients and you know it should be celebrated because a lot of work goes into that. And we as the British do have an association with alcohol and that celebratory factor.
0: And it was, Jimmy. We were doing that every weekend. There's a reason to celebrate every single week. Plenty of reasons to celebrate, you know, which I also think was a problem because those celebrations for a lot of people, when a new client became my problems because I am the one responsible for delivery. How do I make sure this is delivered? How can I enjoy this moment when there's things that I'm not confident we can do? And those kind of periods turn the celebrations turned into the worst nights for me. Again, back to your point, tell a 22-year-old guy he's not going to drink anymore. What does he do on a Friday? There's not many options. You don't think there's many options. You don't think there's a world outside there. And that was very difficult. That was very, very difficult to to consciously choose a path where 99% of your friends are not going to go with you. You're very, very alone. Firstly, 99% won't go on the entrepreneurial's part. So you're very alone there. And then you've got to go on the sobriety route. You feel so disconnected from the rest of the world, so dis- disconnected from your peers, because what are they want to do, what interests them, doesn't interest you. You're really, really alone.
1: It must have been tough, but you've made it through, right? And it's dramatically improved your life. So you know, you regularly tweet about this. It's worth following Don on Twitter about this because it's not easy at points, right? To keep it up.
0: Yeah, it's not easy. I've I've had a, a difficult problem on with things and I've struggled. i put on weight, but I understand myself now. It kind of taught me a lot about myself and how I am and how I manage myself. And it's the most difficult thing I've done, but also the most rewarding thing. People ask me what my greatest achievement is, and it's not taking social change to the public market. It's being sober for almost five years now, because if the first one didn't happen, the second one wouldn't have happened. How can I have a great achievement, which was falling off a greater achievement?
1: Absolutely. And I don't quite want to finish on such a positive moment because they want to know what's next. Like you touched on it there. What is next for Dominic McGregor? You've, you've kind of stepped back from social chain. You've had this great success early on in your career, which a huge amount of people in their 20s would aspire to do what you've done and beyond their 20s as well, frankly. What's next? What's the kind of the dream job after what you've achieved so far?
0: Well, the dream jobs to me are golfer, I think. Yeah. Not for most people, you know, Turning around playing in lovely countries. I think that's the dream job for everyone. But But no, for me, I've been working on a few things over lockdown. I've been just following a couple of passions, a couple of interests. I'm really, as an individual, very keen to help people and build a better world. And I think I can have influence in that environment quite strongly from the experience I've got, but also my understanding of people. I'm going to head into those areas. The dream job, look, if I'm an MP in a couple of years or in government, or advising government, I'd be on the right track to where I want to be. That's kind of the trajectory I hope to follow.
1: It's very interesting because obviously that's my world as, as we've talked about. And I think we're going to see more business people going into politics, which I think is great. And you've seen the success that Andy Street has had in the West Midlands, for example, former chief executive John Lewis. It's a very inspiring story, actually. And politicians can learn a lot from business. And But, but tell me more before you think about it. Sorry, I cut you off there.
0: No, completely not. I think the limiting factors are the private sector will always pay more. So if you remove ego from it, which I think salary is, salary is an ego statement, and you've got the comfort of means to be able to live, which thankfully I do, then you've got to ask yourself, how can I have an impact on people? I could start another company which could do that. Yeah. And I think I will at some point. But while I'm in a kind of period of transition right now, and the world's a little bit chaotic, doing something where you're putting government and the kind of whole population at the forefront of your ambitions, take like Andy Street, for example, in Birmingham, you know, the whole estate the city, you can have a major impact. So... For me, I would like a dip in the water at this stage and somehow the whole thing works, getting a bit of understanding of it, getting some contacts, getting an idea of what a roadmap could look like for some involvement and maybe, you know, pursuing it further in the next couple of years or taking a bit of time out and coming back in five, 10 years when things have changed. So that's the idea for me.
1: That is definitely something that we should explore in an episode. I'd love to know though, just before we go, is there a book or something that's particularly inspired you over the lockdown period? I mean, there's
0: one that I live by, which I think has changed my life and saved my life. And it's Chip Paradox by Dr. Stephen Peters. No, he's a great guy. I actually had the honor of speaking to him and thanking him for his book, helping me. And yeah, that book's in my life. It really helped me understand myself. So that's the book I always recommend when people ask me.
1: Brilliant. Dominic, thanks so much for coming on today. I'm really looking forward to doing it in person later in the year. No problem, Jimmy. Looking forward to it as well. Brilliant. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode, when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.